with your own money, would you buy a house right now or would you wait until the economy settles? Oh, I'm buying. I think more wealth is going to be created right now than name your time period in the past, right? The last five years, three years, 10 years, whatever you want to say. And the deal right now is debt. The deal right now is being able to borrow at 4% for 30 years. Because Darren, you know, as investors, right? We feel pretty good about our ability to borrow something at 4% and earn better than a 4% return. But I'm buying right now, I'm financing because these interest rates and the terms are so advantageous for those who understand it and are in a position to be able to act upon it. You're listening to the Establishing Your Empire show, a podcast that inspires entrepreneurs, creatives, and future business owners to pursue their passions, grow their organizations, and build their empire. My name is Darren Herman, and creatively, I'm best known for my photography, but business-wise, my claim to fame is growing a company from 15K per month in online sales to breaking the $1 million a month barrier. And I'm sitting down with interesting people to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and how they have established their empires. All right, I got Greg Cohen here on the Establishing Your Empire podcast. Thanks so much for uh, joining me, Greg. Greg, um, he's co-founder of JWB Real Estate, um, and he's located in Florida, which is what's great about this uh, virtual podcast. We can talk to people all over the world. Uh, a few crazy stats that I've read about the JWB Capital is 3,500 plus rental properties that you guys have managed, over $26 billion in positive cash flow, which just sounds crazy to your clients. And you have like over 1,200 clients. So, uh, very excited because I think real estate is very, it's, it's an interesting time. Uh, the market's crazy right now. And um, I think it, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait. Uh, yeah. My first easy question or super hard one is, you know, what, you know, what's your elevator pitch? You know, who is Greg Cohen, right? Well, so I am the guy who uh, came from corporate America and uh, thought I, Kind of had it all figured out as far as what I wanted my career to be in college and post college. And I got to corporate America and I realized that that was not the place for me. And, um, you know, what I ended up doing was grabbing one of my best friends and who was also jobless at the time. And, you know, I was interested in making a career move. And, and we started reading books on real estate and started watching late night infomercials and started going to real estate conferences. And, I'm the guy who scared the hell out of his parents and everybody around him and left that corporate job to go and chase a, a real estate dream that everybody thought was crazy. And, you know, 15 years later, it's been an incredible ride. You know, we've been blessed to, to bring on a, a large number of clients who've placed their trust in us. And at the end of the day, we make real estate investing easy for people. There's a lot of people out there that are either too busy or they live in a market where they can't buy rental properties, um, but they want to. They want to own rental properties. and so. Within our, our company, we're able to make that possible. We help people build a portfolio of rental properties. They get to buy them from us. These are already built or renovated. They already have a tenant in place. And then we do the property management in-house for them. So whereas people are kind of searching for an alternative to investing in the stock market and you know, they look at bonds and those really don't produce really decent yields right now, but they want something safe and consistent, they can come to rental property investing. It can be as simple as investing in the stock market. And that's, that's really what we're all about. 
I love it. So let's go back a little bit. Um, so corporate America, you were, you had a corporate job. So I have a very similar story worked for a big company and, you know, just wasn't for me. But like, so how did you actually start a company? Like you said a lot of fun things that you kind of did some research and, you know, um, and and I guess this was probably like early 2000s, probably. So how did how did you actually start? I think a lot of people get stuck with the they have an idea or they want to do something, but they, they can't take that first you know, step. Well, it was really hard for me. If, if you knew me in college and even before then, I, I was not destined to be an entrepreneur. I still am not a, your classic entrepreneur. I'm somebody who had a best friend who is a, who is a classic entrepreneur, who was, who was my first business partners. I now, I now have a total of three business partners. Um, and that entrepreneurial spirit is, is within Alex, who was my first business partner. But not with me. Um, I, I was the guy who thought that it was going to be learning and working up the corporate ladder. And there was a part of me that really enjoyed that process and enjoyed that security growing up. My parents were not entrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs in my family. Nobody invests in real estate in my family prior to me starting this company. And um, so I, it was not something that was easy or natural. You know, for me, the reason why it was something that I did was because combination of me realizing that the pain of staying in corporate America and looking at what my life was, I thought going to become was greater than the pain of me going out there and falling on my face. <laughs> for me, I've never had a real fear of failure. It's just, I guess I, I credit that to my parents for allowing me the space to go out there and fail and not really like connecting that to my self-worth. And so that was a pretty easy kind of hurdle to overcome uh, for me. But the pain of staying in corporate America in my specific situation, specific situation was, was really bad. I had a bad manager, I had a bad situation. There was backstabbing. And I was like a 22, 23-year-old kid. And what I said to myself is, if I really do have plans to try to be a mover and a shaker and work my way up the corporate ladder, and people are stabbing me in the back at age 22 or 23 when I'm a nobody in this company, what's going to happen as I really try to take a step forward and try to lead and try to, to make gains? I, I just... I just envisioned that it would only become worse. And so, so you, and you mentioned that you had, a, you started with a partner and then now you have multiple partners. It's always been kind of an area that uh, I haven't really gone into as much. I did start my first company with, with a partner and that one was a little easier because he was a more of a mentor situation for me, but any advice with finding a partner or keeping a partner happy? Any, any way, any direction you want to go there? Yeah, it's been 15 years now that we've been together as business partners. Um, it was I started with my my best friend who's Alex, and we started the company together. And six months later, we had our first employee who uh, we hired at ten dollars an hour, and quickly realized that you know he was somebody that we wanted that was going to help grow the pie of the company, and so. We brought him on as a business partner. And then in 2010, that was about five years into the company, we brought on our fourth uh, business partner, um, Adam Eisman. So now we have a, a structure of making decisions in our company that is very different. Done a, a number of podcasts and number of speaking opportunities, just specifically on how there's like a four-headed decision-making monster here at JWB. And then we all have different titles. I happen to be the chief marketing officer and there's Adam is our CEO. We have one of my other business partners. It's also named Adam, which is fun. He's our CFO and then Alex is our president. So we have different roles and responsibilities and titles and whatnot. But when it comes to making decisions, we view ourselves as a four-headed monster as far as being quote unquote the CEO. 
And how do you do that? Well, it's not very normal. You know, usually you have to have that defined, you know, who is making the decision here. But we've got a different approach. And we, we really believe that if we leaned in with a lack of ego and with empathy uh, and with a consensus decision-making methodology, that we would ultimately make better decisions. And that's something that takes a lot of humility. It's something that is really difficult because if you know my business partners and me, we are mo- some of the most stubborn guys you, you will ever meet, you know? And if, if you have some guys that have had some success over 15 years and have built up a decent organization and they're also stubborn, it makes it that much harder for them to back down um, if they don't, you know, if, if you're not going with their decision, right? And I think I, I can certainly... I'm certainly, uh, that is my natural state. I, I want to do what I think is right. Um, but what we also learned is that when there's four of us moving in one direction, there's nothing we can't do. And so the benefit of four of us agreeing to this consensus decision-making rather than voting uh, has been huge because what consensus requires is that not only do you agree with what the consensus is, is that you fully give yourself to that decision and you do not have the ability to to sabotage either knowingly or subconsciously. And when you vote, if it's a two versus one or even a two versus two vote and somebody goes in one direction versus another, subconsciously, you're already pulling yourself in the opposite direction if you didn't get your way. And so it was a, it was, it was something that we learned from a great mentor of ours. We made that decision because quite frankly, Many years ago now, I mean, she's probably eight years, nine years ago, that was part of our toughest time as leaders. And it was because we weren't concentrically making decisions. We were, we were, we were voting. And then, you know, there was some, some sabotage, not knowingly, but just aversively. Um, so we so, made so, that decision. So what, what, what happens when somebody doesn't agree? Like somebody doesn't want, like one person doesn't want to go in that direction. Uh, what happens? We talked through it. And until that person, says I, I support. And if he doesn't support, just it, it, it drops. It's done. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. <laughs> well, that, that, well, that's great. Cause the thing about having, you know, it is interesting cause it, you know, we're talking about voting Well, it's even numbers. So that makes voting already difficult. Right. And then also it is interesting cause it, it probably does slow you down in some ways, but speed you up in the ways that it should speed you up in. Right. Cause if you're all for, going wanting to do that item it's probably gonna get done pretty quickly but if like you were saying it's that's interesting take on it to where if you know two of you really want to but two eh, you know don't really care or would want to focus on different direction that might the decision process uh, making process might be slower but the actual actions of making those um those services or projects or, or whatever it might be might actually end up being much quicker um so uh, walk me through those first five years. Any uh, trials or tribulations, any ups, downs that, you, that, that are fun to talk about? So if you could think of about the wrong time to start a real estate business with a couple of guys, three guys who had no real estate experience, no money, no experience in business overall, 2006, which is when we started, would be about the wrong time to start a business <laughs> in real estate. And that's what we did. Um, so you know, in 2006, we bought about 40 rental properties. Uh, we were borrowed to the hilt. Uh, we borrowed, you know, bank financing, which, you know, generally those interest rates were six, 7% at that time, which sounds really high today, but not, not incredibly high, but we would borrow additional money to be able to 
buy those properties and then renovate those properties. And so we had some really big, really big holding costs. And at that point, now we bought them the right way, meaning that they produced positive cash flow. So that was in our favor. And that was always our you know, a belief. The number one rule when investing in real estate should be that it should be positively cash flowing. But you know, we had never really been through a recession before. We had never seen home prices drop. We didn't think they were going to drop. Nobody did in 2006. Now, in 2007, 2008, 2009, we know what happened. The market crashed and prices fell over 35% in Jacksonville. And so you had these two or three guys at that time who had all of their money borrowed in 40 rental properties. And you would think that that was about the worst situation. You would think that we had to you know, give those properties back to the bank or shut down the shop or do whatever. Uh, but that wasn't the case. And we learned a lot through it. We learned that cash flow is the number one reason why you invest because home prices fell, but rent rates stayed, rent rates stayed consistent in Jacksonville. And that allowed us on a monthly basis to continue to earn that positive cash flow. People were still renting homes for us. People were still paying rent. And it didn't matter to us that the home values dropped so much on paper because this was always a part of our long-term retirement plan. You know, we were investing not to sell it in one year or two years or three years. We were investing to sell it maybe never, right? I still own those properties today and a, and a whole bunch more. And so the plan was always to hold on to those for 10, 20, maybe 30 years or more. Um, so what we learned was the difference between positive cash flow and then your net worth on paper. Our net worth on paper was abysmal in 2008, right? Um, but our cash flow was nice. And so it allowed us to continue to grow. Uh, we, contrary to what a lot of people did, we made investments in people, in systems. We hired, uh, we grew our business, and we couldn't have done that without consistent cash flow. So it was, but I, that's me telling the story, you know, 15 years later, 13 years later, right? At that right, time, sure. you want to talk about trials and tribulations. So scary. So scary for us. I mean, there were many days and many nights where I was like, what are we going to do? Because I knew how the fundamentals work, but I didn't, you know, I was still, still on pins and needles waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, Plus, you, you didn't know that 30% was the, you know, it could have kept going. You didn't know that that was yeah, it, right? Could have right? kept going. Like, yeah, yeah, completely. People are like, well, this is going to keep going. I don't know if real estate's ever going to come back. And we're like, so we did more research and we looked into it and we realized how market cycles work. And um, the really cool thing is that what we also learned through this experience now that we've been through a market cycle, you know, market cycle is generally known between 10 to 20 years. You know, even though home prices fell, about 35% in Jacksonville from 2006 to 2009, the actual average appreciation rate in Jacksonville going back for the full market cycle is still over 4%. So if you look from 2001 to 2020 and you looked at the average appreciation rate per year, it's over 4%. So what that shows you is that supply and demand work in real estate over a full market cycle. And if you buy and hold rental properties for the long haul, you're going to end up with home values appreciating as long as you're in for a full market cycle. What about, let's jump ahead, you know, 2020, 2021, COVID, interesting economically, uh, this kind of crisis that could happen. China is getting more powerful. Do you see, you know, do you think this housing bubble is one going to happen? Could it be worse? Any thoughts around like this, this world that we're in right now? had a lot of questions uh, from current clients, folks who are thinking about investing in real estate and they're saying, well, I love rental properties. I love positive cash flow. But if I could 
if I know that home values are going to drop in six months or a year or in two years, should I wait to purchase? And so we really did a deep dive on the numbers. A couple of things to point out, you know, and it's a little bit different than what common knowledge is. Most people think because of what happened in 2008, that anytime you hear the word recession, you automatically think housing crash. But actually, that's not the truth. In four of the five previous recessions, home values actually appreciated. The one recession where they didn't go down was 2008 when home values dropped. And the big reason why that one is different is because real estate and lending practices caused the recession in 2008, whereas they did not cause the, the four of the previous five recessions. So when, you know, and this is pr prior to COVID, we got a lot of this question because people, if we can put ourselves back what, what it was like prior to COVID, everybody was saying, well, we've had such a bull market for so long. Things are, the, you know, values have gone up. Things are going to, it's going to be a bubble. It's going to pop. And so that was really interesting just to have that basic kind of knowledge that if we did go into a recession, it doesn't automatically mean housing prices are going to crash. And, and, and what about supply and demand of these rental properties? Are, we see, are you seeing any, because obviously with the houses, just the, the residential houses, housing, the supply is very low. Is, is anything happening there? Absolutely. So now if we look towards this COVID reality, People, again, at the beginning were saying, oh, well, if people can't go outside and buy a house, then you're going to find that housing prices are going to crash. And on our show and on our podcast, I came out and I said, I don't expect housing prices to go down. And people are like, wait a second. Like, how can you possibly think that? Because housing prices really, there's not a national real estate market. It's all hyper local. And you have to look at supply and demand in that hyper local market here. And in Jacksonville, just like you mentioned, in many places across the country, we see an extreme housing shortage. And the best way to measure this is what's called months of inventory. So you basically take the number of homes that are on the market in that month, and then you divide it by the number of homes that sold for the previous month. So if you had 8,000 properties on the multiple listing service in your area and 1,000 properties sold last month, then that would be eight months of inventory. And historically, six to seven months of inventory is known as the equilibrium market. And that would lead to historical average appreciation rates. In Jacksonville, it happens to be 4.3% is the average historical home price appreciation rate. So if you've got six to seven months of inventory, you're looking at an average amount of a home price appreciation. If you're below six, you're, you're looking at increased, higher than average home price appreciation in the short run. And if you're over seven and the higher over seven you go, you would see downward pressure on pricing and lower than normal home price appreciation and potentially appro approaching you know, a drop in prices. So since 2014, since JWB started tracking months of inventory every single month, we haven't even touched six months of inventory. Since 2016, we haven't gone above three months of inventory. And just last month, as we were doing the, the June data release, we had the highest number of home sales in Jacksonville's history. We had 3,100 home sales, which is the most we've ever had in any month. And we still have this shortage of, of, of inventory as well. We actually have 2.3 months of inventory in Jacksonville as of June 2020. So when people are concerned about what's going to happen with pricing right now, I don't see housing prices going down anytime soon. What this means is that we could withstand a significant drop in the number of home sales 
before you start to see prices even get to average historical home price appreciation rates. So that's why I came pretty strong in the beginning in March and said, I just didn't see this leading to a decrease in home prices. And the other thing I, I shared with people is that, you know, buying rental properties is a beautiful thing compared to buying stocks because in the stock market, you're, you're trying to time the market. You're trying to bet on whether the value of the, the, is going to appreciate or, or depreciate, right? In rental property investing, that's the least most important thing, right? Because if you buy today, short-term pricing matters the least. You're also getting all this incredible rent that's coming to you, right? Which results in a positive income to you every single month. You've got tax savings. You've got principal pay down. Now you have this incredible opportunity to secure long-term interest rates at like 4%, which is incredible. Um, so if you are trying to time the market in rental properties, it even makes less sense because you're giving up all this real income that you could be getting for three months, six months, a year, while you're potentially waiting for the market to drop. And even if it does, I've been through that before. And if you give it a long enough time period, it's going to come back. So, so yeah, I came pretty strong with that. It's nice to see that now home prices are, are following what we predicted at JWB. And, and I don't see home prices going down anytime in the near future. And my main indication would be looking at months of inventory if something would change. And it's pretty low supply right now, just like you were mentioning. Yeah, Austin, Texas is really low here and, and prices are going through the roof. Um, what about, um, there's so many different directions we go. What about single family homes versus multifamily? Like, you know, you, you hear like Grant Cardone and all them just preaching the multifamily really strong. If somebody had a finite re amount of resources they want to invest, which we all do, I guess, um, like where, I mean, where do you have a favorite there of where to put your money? I like multifamily. I like single family, but I put all of my money in single family. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason is because I think Jacksonville is the best market and it's largely market specific as to whether or not multifamily might be the best approach for you or single family. Um, in the Northeast, there's a ton of multifamily properties. And they can make great investments because you get economies of scale. You have reduced vacancy risk. You have one roof to fix if it, you know, something breaks instead of three or four roofs to fix. So, you know, there, I like that value there. But in Jacksonville, the way the housing stock is, you know, our neighborhoods are built in the 50s and 60s, and it's largely single-family detached housing. Um, if and the reason is because there are multifamily properties in Jacksonville, but they're not in the cash flow neighborhoods that I want you to be investing in. Right. Those are in low income neighborhoods and low income is not the best place for you long term because you have such high turnover costs that I, I check that it's not even on my list of where I would invest myself or where I put our clients. So we're looking for that cash flow sweet spot just below middle income, um, but not low income. And so you just don't see multifamily properties in that space very often. Say somebody who's, you know, you were pretty young when you started in this business. Like how much money does somebody need to get into to get into real estate? Because a lot of people get really nervous about that. They're like, oh, that's something when I have a lot of money, right? So how, do, how does one start? You know, it's the, the whole idea of the no money down, you know, getting into real estate thing really makes me cringe when you're talking about rental properties. It's, it's not real, right? You need to have an investment. So for a typical uh, investment property with JWB, at a minimum, you're looking at about $40,000 including your down payment plus your closing costs. Um, you know, that's putting either 20% down or 25% down plus your closing costs. So there is a, a capital contribution that, you know, you can't get around that um, without getting really creative. And, and the reality is that the person who's 
best suited for this type of investment wants this to be passive, you know, wants this to be something that's kind of like mailbox money for them. This isn't that type of person who wants to be super creative and wants to go and, you know, be a little bit more active, like, like a house flipper, right? A house flipper goes out there. They want to get out there and figure out how the financing can work to put a little as money down as possible. And, and I get all that, but you know, for rental properties, especially who we serve, it's really that passive approach. And those folks generally want it to be very vanilla. Okay. 20% down, 25% down. So it works kind of well. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ways for you to buy properties, buy rental properties, even if you don't have $40,000 of capital right now. Um, the first place that I would tell people to look at is their retirement accounts. Because many people actually have money in their retirement accounts that they could invest in rental properties, but they didn't think that they could do that. They, they thought it wasn't allowed. Um, and at the same time, most Americans are so heavily invested with the retirement account money in the stock market that it's really not a diversified and, and allocated portfolio as it is. So be able to take some of those chips off the table as far as what you have invested in the stock market to reallocate those into rental properties might be a place to find capital that you didn't know you had that you could put into a different asset class. Um, there are other things that you can do as well. You know, when I first started, I had great, I had great credit. I knew the property that I wanted to purchase. I just didn't have the down payment. And so I, uh, I went to my dad and I said, dad, let me go ahead and be the credit partner on this. Will you let me borrow the down payment? And so, you know, maybe in your family, maybe in your circle of friends, maybe you have colleagues at work that you're looking at potentially getting in this, in this together, it actually can kind of work out like a great team sport. You know, you may be able to be the credit partner. The other person, your colleague may be able to be the down payment partner and you guys might split the property 50-50 or, you know, you may be the credit partner. He may or she may give you a loan and then you can pay them back with the positive cash flow over time. Um, that's what I did with my dad. He was the loan. And when, when you, and when you say the credit partner, although I think I understand it just for some people who might not, that that's basically whose whose name's on the loan. Is, is that what you mean by that? Mm -hmm. That's what I assume. So so they're on the hook, of course, but they're they're no cash in, right? Zero dollars in. That's that's great. That's a great way also to partner with somebody. And, and you know, partnerships are always great. A lot of people get really weird about those now. It is a little bit like a marriage, so don't just jump in with the first person that's going to give you forty grand, right? Because <laughs> you're going to be tied to that person for a while. But uh, it's a great way to expedite your your goals and you get to other things. What about zero percent interest rates? Sounds crazy, right? You know, cheap money. A lot of times, that's a way to artificially mess with the market, as legislative like that just happens, right? It's not really a natural way because that should never be, right? Uh, so what's your, what's your take on that? And do, when did you, th when do you think that will rise? I know that's hard to predict obviously, but. So you're talking about like our, our national, like what the fed yeah. is doing with it. Yeah. yeah. You know, the number one goal for the fed right now is to keep our economy from going into shambles. And, you know, as the U S economy, we have this incredible ability just to print money. Um, and so if you look at what's, what's the, what's the lesser of two evils is, printing as much money as it takes to support our economy right now, knowing that there's going to be a bill to be paid later. But at the same time, you're, you're, you're leading to inflation, which is making that bill easier to pay down. <laughs> That's kind of what the Fed is doing right now, right? They're pumping a ton of money into the economy and there's this huge bill to be paid, but the more money that they pump into it, 
inflation actually devalues debt. So it's making it easier to pay down over time. So that's what the Fed's doing. They're going to continue to do that because the alternative right now is so disastrous. So, you know, if... Yeah, yeah I get it too. And it's, 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 a, it's a crazy thought process, but it does actually make sense too. Um, and, it, and it, you know, I've heard of this uh, where basically every percentage point that the uh, interest rates go down... 10% it goes up in, in housing prices. And I think we're seeing some of that supply and demand plus this interest rates. So, and I think you already answered this, but I'm going to ask it more directly. Like with your own money, would you buy a house right now or would you wait until the economy settles? Oh, I'm buying. I am buying so much right now. In fact, an article just came out literally before I jumped on with you. We made a significant investment in downtown Jacksonville and bought uh, the Federal Reserve Building downtown, which it was right. the former Federal Reserve Building yeah, many yeah. years ago. Uh, it was a, it's a vacant building. We bought it for $1.8 million. We're going to do an extensive renovation to it. It's our, our second purchase downtown Jacksonville um, in this year. And we have a few more coming. Um, and so we're making significant investments, not just in commercial buildings downtown. We continue to buy. We'll buy about 700 rental properties this year as well, either lots or properties that will then renovate um, and turn into rental properties as well. And so I'm, I am buying a lot. I think more wealth is going to be created right now than name your time period in the past, right? The last five years, three years, 10 years, whatever you want to say. And the deal right now is debt. The deal right now is being able to borrow at 4% for 30 years. Because Darren, you know, as investors, right, we feel pretty good about our ability to borrow something at 4% and earn better than a 4% return, you know, (laughs) you know, and for you to have that locked in for 30 years is an incredible opportunity, right? There's never been a better time to understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. And good debt is uh, taking out debt that is inexpensive, so think a 4% interest rate that's incredibly inexpensive, taking out that debt on something that pays you every single month, so like a rental property, you take out that 4% debt, you make the payment, and more money comes back to you every single month, so it's positively cash flowing, and then you're investing in an asset that goes up over time. If you're in for the long haul, it's been shown and proven that real estate tends to go up in value. And that's smart debt. So you do need to understand it, be responsible about it. But I'm buying right now. I'm financing because these interest rates and the terms are so advantageous for those who understand it and are in a position to be able to act upon it. So what about everybody talks? Well, not everyone. It's a very, it's a kind of common tale that your own, your own house is the number one money-making wealth creation investment that you'll ever have. I mean, and I, I don't know if I'm asking this question correctly, but is that something that you believe or when you, when you just, what I just heard of what you say is more like get something that's cash flow positive. That to me does not mean your own house, right? Um, I, I don't even know what the question is there, but yeah, do you, with do you have any, any thoughts? hundred percent. I don't think your personal house is your greatest investment that you'll ever make. I don't think it is an asset. I think it's a liability. Uh, you know, the first book I ever read in my transition from corporate America into the life that I have now is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You ever read that book, Dan? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's great. Incredible book, right? Robert Kiyosaki is the author and his definition of an asset versus a liability is pretty simple. And I adopt the same thing. 
right? An asset is something that pays for itself and pays you every single month. A liability is something that you pay for every single month, right? Well, for my rental properties, they pay me every single month. Boom, they're assets. My personal house, I pay a lot of money out the door every single month. <laughs> that is a liability, right? There's nobody, I'm not renting out rooms. There's no money coming in. There's just house payments. There's utilities. There's you know, the gardening that I have to pay for that my wife wants right now. Like, you know, those, those, that's, that's the liability. Now it's a liability that I love. And I still think long-term that owning my house is a, is a, when they use that word investment, but I do, it does go up in value. So it's not the worst liability to have out there, but it's, it's a liability um, in the short run. So, you know, a lot of clients come to us from California, New York, and some of these high, high price markets. And they'll say, you know what? I was looking at the numbers and I'm thinking about buying my own residence, but I got to spend a million dollars to buy this house. You know, that's like me putting down 300 grand to buy the house or something like that. What if I took that 300 grand and I bought six rental properties in Jacksonville? Do you think that would be a good idea? And for a lot of, a lot of folks, especially in the high price markets, that's a great idea because what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for such a strong financial future. Um, and rent in those places is less than what your payments are going to be on your house when you're, when you're buying in California. So yeah, I, I think it can be a, um, a great opportunity for people to look at that in their own personal situations, but don't just assume that your, your personal house is going to be your best, biggest and best investment. It probably won't be. So in, in Jax, so in, well, I'm from Kansas, right? So I'm from this college town where you buy a house. Let's, let's say you spend $100,000 to make math easy. You're expecting like $1,000 rent, you know, ish, right? Maybe $850, $900, $1,100, depending on the place. In Austin, Texas, you spend $100,000, which doesn't happen. You probably get $300 a month rent, right? Where do you see, I mean, obviously the higher number, the better, but actually where do you see that land? Like I, I always heard, heard that be called the 1% rule or whatever. And I, my first house was in college. I had three tenants with me. I bought it with $2,000 down and I was, I grew up very poor, so I had no money, but I made it work and it was great and was able to sell it as a, was able to sell it at a profit. But of course that house was $74,000. Of course, it's a long time ago, but still, um, Where's kind of the sweet spot? Where, 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 where do you where do you kind of see that you can actually make investments at? Right, like that's real. Yeah. Well, I think your number one rule when you're buying rental properties has to be that it pays for itself. There has to be positive cash flow because I believe in acquiring assets and not liabilities. But then the question is, okay, do I always go with the market that has the best rent to price ratio? Do I always focus on the most positive cash flow? A lot of investors come to Jacksonville with this question. And I always ask them, you know, are you looking at this just because you want the best positive cash flow or do you want the best total return on your money? Because one of the best things about rental property investing is the other profit centers not named positive cash flow, right? We've got tax savings from depreciation from a tax perspective, not, not from value depreciation, but the IRS giving you tax breaks. We've got principal pay down. We've got home price appreciation, and then we've got the value of inflation devaluing your debt. So the longer you hold the asset, it's a hedge against inflation. So you've got all these other profit centers. And what I really challenge investors to look at and understand is what's most important to them, right? If you want just the biggest gains out there and you're willing to take whatever risk, you're going to go to a market like California, like San Francisco, 
and you're going to buy a house that's a liability every single month and hope that you get 10% appreciation for three years so you can make $100,000 or something like that, right? That's one end of the spectrum. And that's not how I subscribe because that's a liability because you're paying money in every single month. You could go to the other end of the spectrum and go to a market like Kansas City is a, is a great market it's from a cash flow perspective, right? You might even be able to get close to the 1% rule like you were talking about there. But what you get is a great rent to price ratio, but the other profit centers don't really compare. If you look at the long-term appreciation rate for a market like Kansas City or like Cleveland or Memphis, these historically grow well below the national average. And you know, when we're talking about investing in rental properties, we're not talking about assets that cost $100. So the difference between you know, an asset that appreciates at 2% a year versus an asset that appreciates at 4% a year over 20 years that you're holding it is a big deal. So when you ask, you know, where's that sweet spot? What I tell folks is number one, the market has to positively cash flow. After that point, right, would I rather have an additional 100 bucks a month of cash flow on the same return, but I have to be in a no growth market or a slow growth market? Or would I rather have positive cash flow, maybe not the most positive cash flow, but be in a market that's going to grow long term? My personal opinion and what our clients think is it's better to have the best of, of all worlds, all of those profit centers, because after a 10 or a 20 year hold, you're going to look back at your investment, including home price appreciation. You're going to make a lot more by being in a growth market. Um, I love it. So and I, I got a couple and we could if we want to, we could wrap a fire them. We could do it however you want, because I know we have a time constraint. Um, so this one might be an interesting question for you is uh, the future of realtors with more automations, the world getting much easier. I think it's a it's an area that hasn't really done a whole lot of innovation in a long time. Any thoughts on the future of realtors? I think it's tough. I think it's going to be tough for real estate agents. You know, you got to look at the value that you're providing for a long time. The value that real estate agents provided was access to the multiple listing service. That is a, a lot of that has gone away now. Right. right. I mean, Zillow really changed the game and you've got a whole lot more now of, of other players that are just making it accessible, that information accessible. Prior to COVID, we had iBuyers. So Zillow and other big players were actually making offers for people to buy their house, basically sight unseen. You know, and these were offers that were slightly below market value but still a lot higher than what that person would have to sell it for typically if they were going to you know sell it to a, a house flipper you know mm -hmm. so you're and what that means for real estate agents is they're not involved in that as well there's another option for people to basically sell their house make it less friction and have all access to information so all these things i think spell really big problems for your typical run of the mill real estate agent that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a value for somebody to be a resource to help people buy their house. I think that's going to be more valuable than ever. But the typical model and earning 6% or 3% on the sale to just list the house and let the listing, let the buyer come to you, I think is, I don't, I don't see that lasting. It's not lasting right now. <laughs> um, and I just think that's, that's going to be a dead way of, of doing this. Did you know that and my sister lives in Australia? Nobody buys houses through a real estate agent in Australia. 
Interesting. Yeah, they have auctions <laughs> in Australia. And but. so, yeah, so, you know, I, that blew my mind. So they haven't seen the value in your typical real estate relationship or real, realtor relationship uh, in Australia for a long time. And I, I, it's a great point. I haven't been asked that question in a while, but I think realtors are really challenged now to figure out their best value proposition. Yeah, and, and, and innovate. You know, it's, a, it's an area that is, uh, is not wanting to innovate. Um, they say they are, but they, I have real estate uh, agents that are clients of mine too. So I'm very in tune to that world. And they do really, they do great jobs. But, you know, what, like, I think your best point there was is it six or 3% on a million dollar property? Is that really what we're paying for here? You know, and I think of some of the stuff we do for our clients for a couple thousand dollars. And it's like very technical and a lot more probably touch points. I'm like, oh, you know, it might, it might not, might, might not be a, um, I don't know. But I think also a lot of people get worried about listing their million dollar property without somebody to handhold it. So I, I do think that there will be some innovation. It'll come slower. I did think COVID was going to put a little more pressure, but it didn't actually put less pressure. But um, we'll see what the future holds. I do have a question like what, what's uh, what's the next five years, 10 years for you? Like uh, what, what's your kind of future outlook? What, what are you what are you doing? Anything new, different? I'll, I'll stay in the same area or some other projects coming up? Well, we're committed to Jacksonville. There are a lot of other turnkey providers out there that go to multiple markets. They just have a different approach than we do. We really believe that we can make the most impact and create the best investments and limit the risk for our clients by being here, being active in the community, um, being a big part of downtown Jacksonville. So, so we're going to be here. Um, my three business partners and I all live here near the beach here in Jacksonville. We live a few streets away from each other. We all have young families. Uh, so the thought of leaving Jacksonville is just not even on our radar. Uh, which is great. It makes our clients feel a lot more comfortable as well. And it's it's what we personally want to do. But as far as the business, it's a really exciting time at JWB because, you know, for so long, you know, it's our 15th year in business now. We started, it was just a couple of us in the beginning, just kind of figuring this thing out on the fly. Um, as we've grown, we've now established um, layers of management with really incredible leaders that have been grown from within. Um, and, and, that's incredible. We've made some huge investments in our technology. We made a big investment in Salesforce. I've started a couple of years ago and have continued to invest in that. And we'll we'll continue we'll continue to spend a lot of money with Salesforce for many many years going forward. <laughs> that's how that, that's <laughs> their model. Uh, um, they are good. What, what about what about um, do you do any short term rental Airbnb anything like that? Uh, but uh, and have you uh, what do you think about that that market that that doing that? You know, I, I think it's. There are so many different ways that you can make a return on your investment in rental properties and in real estate in general. And that can be a great way to earn a rate of return for some folks. You know, for me and the way my mind works and the way our clients' minds work is a big value of this is being passive and having everything done for you. And so what, what I feel like is that if I can win on this passive nature and have it all done for me and have long-term leases in place, I mean, our average tenant stays over four years. So like that kind of that set it and forget it model and just consistency means a lot to me. If I have to give up a potential couple points of return potentially in order to secure that, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, this doesn't have to be my home run. Um, rental properties don't have to be my home run. So that's, that's how I feel. So now when it comes to short-term rentals, it's pretty close to rental properties, but it's not the same thing. You know, their short-term rental leases are, you know, many times 
a day or a week, right? Or, you know, something like that. So the constant turnover is a lot, um, you know, things break more often, right? I mean, you've got to repair a whole bunch of stuff. If you're doing it for yourself and you're saving that property management fee, that's a much more active approach for you. You'll probably earn a better cash on cash return, I would imagine, but you're putting in your time. A lot of times when you look at what the returns are, if you include that property manager, they're pretty close to what the long-term rental yields are. When you factor in that you don't have nearly as much maintenance or vacancy cost or turnover. So, you know, it's something that I think you can make a little bit more money and maybe even a lot more money on a cash flow basis if you're willing to put the work in. If this passive nature is the most important thing for you, I think rental properties and securing long term leases is really, you know, that's the best kind of risk adjusted return that also kind of fits with the lifestyle. What about what's your, what's your guys' approach to marketing? How do you guys get? clients like how, 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 how does that happen i've been trying to get on the darren herman podcast forever <laughs> i mean jeez you know that's right, right. yeah <laughs> I, you know i had to keep pushing you back right no, just no thank you for this opportunity no you know our approach is really about investing a lot in the client experience and getting referrals so over half of our business comes from referrals it's always been that way we don't spend a lot of money on your traditional advertising sources um, we invest a lot in the client relationships and then we do a lot on social and we do a lot of kind of just, you know, being there, being substantive and being in front of clients. So we have a show that we do twice a week and you know, that's really been our best return on our investment is just simply being there, being ourselves rather than shelling out a whole bunch of money on billboards or radio or all of those. I've spent a ton of money on that years and years ago and it just never paid off. And even the clients that we brought on board from those traditional advertising sources, they just didn't come in with as much trust. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if there was a complaint to be had, it was more often one of those folks that came from one of those kind of like non-trusting lead sources. And so, yeah, so we just pump all of our efforts into our client experience. Our, our motto, you know, it comes down to the fact that if you, if you want to come to JWB and you want to buy properties, you, you typically want to build a portfolio of maybe three, five, 10 rental properties. Well, if we just simply do a good job and we know what your plan is, you're probably going to come back and buy all those properties with us because you live in California, New York, and you don't want to go and find a new partner if you don't have to, you know? So, so that's really what's helped us grow. Well, so, so what does, does uh, success, success look like for you? For you? Uh, success for me personally, um, you know, it's, uh, I just think there's no substitute for time spent with the people that you prioritize in your life. So, you know, more than a dollar figure or more than some achievement or whatnot. I just look at, you know, the amount of days that uh, I get to go and be with my eight-year-old playing basketball with her or my six-year-old. He's really into golf right now. So, you know, getting to take him, you know, maybe uh, being able to do that on a weekly basis and, you know, flexibility in my schedule is the most important thing. I, I'm, I'm never going to be that guy who wants to work, you know, 20 hours a week. I enjoy working, uh, but I like to do it on a schedule that can wor also work with the priorities that I have. So I'm your guy who's up at five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, if I can jet out early and, you know, take my son golfing in the afternoon, that gives me a feeling of accomplishment. And, and this is kind of my, my last question, question I always end every podcast, podcast with is, is um, how, would how would you like, you like to be remembered? remembered? You know, I just really like to be remembered. Uh, man, that's a tough one. I haven't been asked that one. I feel like I'm 
I'm too old, too young to be asked this question, Darren. Um, you know, I, I just think the uh, the way that you treat people is is really important to me. The way you communicate and really tough times and, and good times uh, should always be with a kind heart and truly trying to do the best for people. So that's the way that I'd like to be remembered. All right, Greg, it was a big pleasure to have you on the Establishing Your Empire podcast. I appreciate your time. Um, you know, being in Florida sounds like a great place if you're, if you love to go play golf, you know, like you said with your son and, uh, so that'd be really enjoyable. So, um, all right, man. Well, I really, really appreciate you having, having you on. Thank you so much, man. We'll get you down here sometime soon, Darren. Okay. That's, that's right. Actually, uh, my, uh, my wife's parents just bought a place in the Keys. Oh, nice. So we're, we're going to, yeah. So we're on the way if you drive after, from Austin. You got yeah, to drive by geez, us. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. you know, hour 20 stop in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. All right, All right man. Cheers. Cheers. See you later. Later. Bye. Bye.